All right. Well, happy Friday, everyone. That's a, a new public service announcement we're going to be doing here is identifying the day since it's such a pain in the butt to know what day it is anymore. <laughs> uh, unless, of course, you're listening to this uh, after we drop on some later date, in which case I'm sorry for adding to your confusion. Nonetheless, <laughs> this recording is dropping on a Friday. It is the Damn Interesting Week podcast. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. And I'm Angela Epley. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. This comes to us from the CBC via CBC Radio. And I'm just going to kick us off with a literal fluff piece. You know, it's been a heavy week. And the title of this one is Prickles the Sheep Comes Home After Seven Years with Glorious Unsheared Fleece. I'm picturing like the Fabio of sheep. Like You are. Is it? No, you're not wrong. This article has some of the most stunning photography of the floofiest sheep (laughs) I think I have ever seen. It's a bare-faced merino. So what it means is that wool doesn't grow on her face, so it doesn't prevent her from seeing. So they're perfectly capable of just going unshorn for as long as seven years, as the sheep has clearly demonstrated. And it's this beautiful, like, almost kind of looks like if you're looking at a super massive corgi from behind because of, like, (laughs) how the fleece and the wool is kind of gathered at the front. I highly recommend visiting the link just to see the pictures because it's totally worth it. It sounds like you're saying she looks like a butt. She kind of (laughs) does. And and part of it is it's quite the chonker. She really is quite the chonker. So, like, she escaped and she's been missing for seven years? That's exactly right. So basically, she disappeared during some Australian bushfires seven years ago because basically she got stuck on the wrong side of a fence that was rebuilt after a fire that ravaged the state of Tasmania in 2013. And they managed to catch her. They didn't realize that she was actually missing because the farm, it's a family farm. They've got thousands of sheep. But then one night, a father-in-law installed a night vision camera on the property and saw this great white fluffy thing come down and peer into the lens. They thought it was just sort of like a random occurrence, but then the family was having a bar barbecue outside for their son and the sheep showed up again so they were setting up they looked across the dam they saw this big round thing on the other side and they were like wait I think that's a crazy sheep we saw in the video (laughs) and so in the middle of this barbecue lunch the husband suddenly disappears about 15 minutes later he called and he was puffing and panting on the phone he said I've trapped the sheep in the corner of a paddock and I'm laying on it because he didn't (laughs) want it to go away that's one way to capture it I guess (laughs) I mean, you know, given the girth and the size of this thing, I think it really took having to just sort of like lay on top of it to be like, no sheep, you stay here. It's probably pretty comfortable. (laughs) All things considered, it could have been a much more uncomfortable sort of capture. (laughs) You're right. So it took a group effort to wrangle the sheep back into the back of a truck and she's settling in just fine. And there's a lovely black and white photo of her and all of her sheepy, floofy glory next to the rest of the sheep that are shorn. And a nice thing about how this has all gathered a lot of attention they wanted to make sure that this kind of viral attention could actually be done for good. So they've scheduled her to be shorn on May 1st. And in the meantime, they have an online fundraising contest where people can make a donation and guess the weight of the wool that will be <laughs> shorn off That's of her. That's nice. Any pros- 
I know, right? The proceeds will go to the United Nations Refugee Agency because the family thought the worst place on the planet to be at the moment with this disease would be a refugee camp, and they want to help however they can. So they're using the story of Prickles the sheep coming home with her amazing fleece for a good cause. I'm assuming they had to have named it after they got her back. If they had thousands and they didn't know she was missing, like they don't have names for all thousands of their sheep. <laughs> You're absolutely right. The article notes that the creature who is now called Prickles, right. she may have just been sheep. 214 or something like that. And hopefully Prickles is not because she's gotten all these sticky burrs or anything else like that. But um, yeah, I imagine the fur is probably pretty gnarly. Like, I wonder if they can even use it. Like, I, I mean, obviously they have to shear her and everything, but I wonder if after they weigh it, they can do anything with it or if it's just like, no, this. <laughs> My guess is that there's some kind of cleansing process that occurs. I am actually not a, a sheep owner. What? Nor have I ever worked with sheep? <laughs> but <laughs> I know, right? But my guess is that there's probably some kind of cleaning process for, you know, even well tended non-escaped regularly shorn sheep. That's true. So. Regular sheep get dirty too. And actually, I bet only the outside is dirty. I bet down, you know, you get down to the core, like you could take core samples of the wool and it would be <laughs> nice and clean on the inside. Exactly. Moisturized with all that lanolin. Who knows? You know, this might beget another kind of viral uh, fundraiser where they could use the actual wool from the sheep to make some kind of caftan to then auction off for further proceeds. I think that would be a great idea. Y'all can have it in Australia. (laughs) Take it and run with it. Make some money. (laughs) That would be really cool if this like inspires a whole new brand of like luxury wool that takes like seven years of investment because the inside is so much softer than your regular farm sheep. Well, I think that's kind of, if I'm recalling correctly, that may be what cashmere wool kind of has a similar thing oh, yeah? where it has to come from, I think, sheep or maybe goats. I think it, they, they're on high elevations. And so they've got to have like better inner layers to keep themselves warm. So it's denser and softer. Or hmm. I could be making that up. That wasn't one of our damn interesting curated links this week, but Google around and go down a sheep hole. You could always, always Google it. And by the end of your Googling adventure, you may decide you are going to be a sheep owner. Pick one up. You know, have it in the yard. They're majestic creatures if these pictures are any indication. <laughs> All right, next link. Next link. Well, this one is from the BBC. How the fake Beatles conned South America. Fake Beatles as in B-E-A-T-E-L-E-S? Yes, yes, the Fab Four. It's not entirely a con. It was one man's con and most everybody else was just sort of along for the ride. But what happened was in 1964, band manager Bob Yori saw, you know, Beatlemania sweeping the nation. He said, we got to capitalize on this. He either took a band that was already one he was managing or he just sort of picked a band and said, you guys, you're my new project. But they were called Mm -hmm. the Ardells and it was four young men. And he said to them, we're going to rebrand you into the American Beatles, B-E-E-T-L-E-S. So it was, you know, just close enough to not be trademark infringement, but also it was sort of a fun little gag. And they weren't a cover band. They weren't trying to trick anybody. It was basically just sort of a marketing joke to kind of get attention and get themselves on marquees and get more gigs. Mm -hmm. But they did grow their hair out and dress the same. They put on the suits and the, you know, the black turtlenecks and they kind of did their best to lean into the joke. But it was very clear they were Uh they were not the Beatles. So they were playing at a club (laughs) in Miami and this Argentinian promoter, Ruby Duclos, spotted them and said, oh, my God, you guys are amazing. We want to sign you on a concert tour for Argentina. And the American Beatles were like, cool, it's time for us to hit the big time. But Duclos, he did not make it clear to all of the Argentinian gigs that these were not actually the Beatles. He very clearly (laughs) tried to scam them and said, I'm bringing the Beatles to Argentina, Mm -hmm. which the Beatles had never Mm -hmm. gone to South America. And they were hugely popular there. Even today, they said that between Mexico, Uruguay and Argentina, all three of those countries have as much engagement with the Beatles on YouTube as they do in the U.K., 
They're just very, very popular. Yeah. And of course, it started to go sour very quickly. Initially, it got out of hand because competing TV stations had booked them for the same night. And they had ended up having a confrontation at the airport as the band arrived. (gasps) And so these boys get off the plane and there's like these two crowds from Channel 9 and Channel 13. And on the one hand, Channel 9 had the enforceable contract. But Channel 13 was much more uh, linked in with the bribery and the local authorities. And so Mm. it was pretty clear that Channel 13 was going to get them. So Channel 9 said, ah, we're going to bring backup. They called one of their professional wrestling performers named Karadajian. And they said, we need you to bring a bunch of your bulky friends for a confrontation. We're not going to tell you what it is. And they literally tried to carry off the boys, basically. They had these big wrestlers on one side and cops on the other. And there was a judge there trying to mediate the contract dispute at the time. What a circus. Yeah, And Channel 13 managed to kidnap the drummer. Channel 9 got everybody else into the car, but Channel 13 was like, no, you got to negotiate to get your drummer back. And so they figured out whatever the contract dispute was. And it's not clear at this point. No one seems to have realized that they weren't the real thing. Like the only evidence, because I mean, these guys weren't necessarily Beatles fans. They were just like, this is a moneymaker. We want it. Wow. But uh, anyway, as soon as they got on stage, the fans knew immediately. They obviously, they knew what the Beatles looked like. They knew these guys were not them. They managed to avoid a riot, but there was like a lot of laughing and half-hearted heckling going on for the entire TV performance. And then later concerts on the tour, they went less well. Audience members were throwing things. <laughs> oh. Yeah. And the band was like, we already had been paid. We came to do the show, but we would like get off the stage immediately as soon as it was done and get in the truck and get out of there because the fans were really mad. Because, of course, the concert promoters were in the same position as the TV station. They're like, yeah, this is going to go badly, but we'll already have sold the tickets. So we're going to keep leaning into it. Uh, And so they had no, I mean, the fans had no real avenue of redirection other than on the poor artists themselves. Absolutely not. And and the press just destroyed them. They had all sorts of great quotes that I'm sure are sort of idioms in Argentina, but they said they have hair on their vocal cords. They... They called them anti-melodic. Oh, oh, I know. And howling songwriters. <laughs> they basically <laughs> noted that the only thing they have in common with the real Beatles is their hair. They seem very obsessed with hair of there. But, yeah. uh, but part of the problem as well was that they got accidentally wrapped up in a political situation at the time. <laughs> the right wing juntas were trying to sort of stamp out Western influence and like sexualized rock music. But because mm-hmm. the right wing juntas were so against them, the youth of the country ended up heartily embracing them. Even though they weren't the Beatles, they were like, yeah, but you know what? They're American and we like them anyway. And so they ended up having this sort of countersurge of actual support. And people were genuine fans of them, even though they knew they were fake. And they would go to the concerts. And it ended up being an actual phenomenon where the American Beatles are sort of known in Argentina. Because they began to stand for something else. Right. And they, they took up a symbolism that was near and dear to their hearts, despite what they had intentionally gone out as. Yeah, exactly. Are there any, like, videos of the actual performances that somehow miraculously still exist so we can actually hear these vocal cords with hair growing on them? I believe there actually are. The uh, a, a large part of the information <gasps> from this comes from a 2017 documentary called The Day the Beatles Came to Argentina. And it's out there. I don't know where to find it, but it's out there and you can watch it. And it's got interviews with the surviving band members and the manager who said this was my idea. They got all sorts of people 
So it seems like it would be pretty interesting to watch. But of course, all good things come to an end. And the, the American Beatles eventually sort of got tired and wore out their welcome and came back home. And they were not able to gain that same traction in America. <laughs> mm. They eventually changed their name to The Razor's Edge. They cut one unsuccessful album and then they kind of broke up and two of the band members died. And now it's just sort of a pleasant oh. memory where they're like, man, remember that time <laughs> that we were superstars in Argentina and nowhere else? <laughs> next link next link this next link comes from gizmodo from george Dvorsky. do you remember that explosive 2018 eruption on kilauea where a volcano did a great amount of damage it destroyed hundreds of homes on hawaii's big island it was kind of unexpected in terms of we know that they have active volcanoes going on but it was a very recent and kind of widespread devastation and basically reshaped the shoreline of hawaii but we have recently discovered that heavy rainfall may have been the cause for this particular eruption. Huh. So what they found is that intense and sustained rainfall, excessive precipitation in the months leading up to the eruption led to the collapse of rocky support structures near the magma chamber. So basically, lava was able to creep up and bust through the surface. This is based on a study that was co-authored by geologist Jamie Farkerson from the University of Miami. And so they're basically using this to propose a new way of predicting the timing and frequency of volcanic eruptions, not just at Kilauea, but other volcanoes. Scientists had previously considered this as a thing, but these effects were only known to influence areas near the surface. And so what makes this new paper important is that it suggests that rainfall can perturb structures deeper below. Obviously, that's going to create a lot more instability and create these uh, volcanic eruptions. Yeah, that's interesting. Like, it's almost a volcanic version of fracking. You've gone and inserted water in yeah. unstable layers and stuff shifts and all of a sudden you're, you're erupting. That's a really nice allegory. I wonder if there's like a steam component as well, because, I mean, if the water gets to the magma, that creates mm -hmm. pressure right there. I imagine that's probably an upward force to contend with as well. Yeah. I'm not a, a seismologist. I'm <laughs> no, no. But I mean, this is, you know, the fact that we're just figuring this out now, that's definitely something to consider as well. I mean, they're really attributing this to the fact that wet rock breaks easier than dry rock, yeah, right? Yeah. But that would certainly be a concern because you do have huge temperature fluctuations from the temperature of magma versus the surface. That also kind of explains why there wasn't a lot of uplift at the volcano in the months leading up to the eruption. So eruptions happen when the pressure in the magma chamber is high enough to break the surrounding rock and then magma travels to the surface. This pressurization causes inflation of the ground by tens of centimeters and they did not see significant inflation in the year prior to the eruption. So that's what led them to start looking at, I don't know, rainfall? Right, who knows? Maybe it was rainfall. Well, that's really useful, though, because now if you know that a certain amount of rainfall is coming, you can also say, and this might make the volcano unstable, so maybe evacuate for flooding and for lava. Especially now, given how climate change is already increasing the odds of heavy downpours in many locations. Yeah, so. heavy storms are like hurricanes. Climate change here to ruin the party again. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next link. Next link. So this one is about one of my favorite places. I don't really have a legitimate reason other than it's just a cool story, but it's about Pompeii, the city that was buried under the volcanic ash. Archaeologists are continuing to dig on it even to this day. So long time ago, they had found this sort of unique feature where outside the city walls was a ton of trash, just piles and piles of trash all right outside the city walls. And the assumed narrative had always been that 17 years before the volcano erupted, there was a massive earthquake. So, you know, they had some warning that the city was not going very well. <laughs> but the assumption was that this was sort of half-hearted cleanup from that earthquake. You know, all these buildings collapsed. They had to take the debris and just get rid of it. And so they just sort of got it to the city walls and then dumped it and didn't get any farther. And a professor named Allison Emerson basically wasn't buying it because outside the city walls, there were still a bunch of suburbs 
She said, it just doesn't make sense. Why would you dump all this stuff in what is basically the middle of your city? I mean, yes, it's outside the walls, but there's a lot of people on the other side of those walls. Yeah, they wouldn't stand for that. Right. And she noted that the trash was lined up several meters high along the entire north wall, as well as portions of the other walls. And it was just waste wise. It was too much for what should have been the amount of destruction that the earthquake caused. So they started digging into it. They started taking samples from the dirt and they started taking samples from inside the city. And what they found was pretty irrefutably, these things were organized. It wasn't just random trash dumping. They were sorted like recycling. They had different, you know, broken pots are over here, broken plaster pieces from buildings are over there. So then they started looking into the buildings that were currently in the city. And they discovered Mm -hmm. that they were building buildings out of trash. Oh, my gosh. Every wall within Pompeii is filled with these broken amphoras and these lumps of rock and plaster. And then they would put a nice plaster coat over it. But they invented recycling. Oh, my gosh. That was a very sustainable earthship kind of way to live. Right, right. And she said, you know, this idea of like we were imagining them as like, oh, they're too lazy to clean up their trash. But instead it becomes, no, they were way more motivated than even we are to avoid waste. Huh. So it's more of a modern convention that hyper consumption and huge waste production and laziness about that is really that that's on us, guys. That's not our ancestors. <laughs> yeah. Well, and they noted that using these kind of loose pieces of pottery and stuff inside the walls, to a certain degree, it acts like rebar. It actually made the walls stronger than if you had just made them out of mm. fresh plaster. So, I mean, it was better building materials. They used up their trash. It was just all around really cool. And this was recycling back in way, way long ago. I don't have any dates, so I can't tell you when it was. But (laughs) That makes so much sense, though. I mean, in terms of how much more challenging it must have been to source and fabricate items for daily use, even things like pottery. I mean, that, that kind of stuff just would have to be a much more difficult endeavor than it is today with things that are automated or having, you know, machinery to aid in fabrication. I can't believe that we just found that out now. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, and they also noted that, like, because it was an island, it's a lot harder to get new materials shipped in. Of course, yeah. So, I mean, it makes sense that other Roman cities weren't necessarily doing this, but Pompeii was like, no, no, we're going to be self-sustaining, thank you. (laughs) I I know that with certain earthship constructions that are done in, like, New Mexico and and kind of the desert areas of the United States, things like tires, even, like, plastic liter soda bottles tend to get used in creating these walls because not only does it, like you say, act like rebar, it also has insulating properties for temperature variations so that you have less of a reliance on needing AC or anything like that. That's amazing. It's an ancient tradition, born again. Ingenuity will solve everything, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly true. All right, next link. Next Next link. link. This article is from The Guardian by Catherine Gammon, and it's called A Tiny Scientific Marvel. Olaf the IVF toad brings hope to at-risk species. (laughs) Is this IVF like pregnancy IVF? Oh, yes. And it's got this really cute picture of a super teeny tiny toad on a gloved finger. It's probably like half the length of the human fingernail. It's just a little, little bitty buddy. But basically, uh, Olaf was the first amphibian born via IVF using (laughs) sperm that was frozen and thawed. I'm assuming they're endangered and that's why they bought, they they weren't just like, let's go knock up some frogs. Like they had some reasons. That's that's true. Um, An ecologist at Mississippi State University who assisted with the project said, we were able to recover a genetic lineage that had disappeared. Oh, wow. So we were able to produce an offspring from dead 
parents. They basically reintroduced a genetic line back into the population. Wow. I know. Isn't that crazy? So he wasn't like, they did they put him in a surrogate or was it just like grow him in a test tube and there he is? They actually didn't get into how that was happening. But my <laughs> understanding is the way that frogs reproduce is that sperm and eggs are deposited oh, externally right. and they have to- I, right? I'm an idiot. Like I was sitting there picturing a- <laughs> <laughs> You you already knew this. You know how frogs get I, it I on, right? Have, they just kind of yeah. dump their stuff and, and it kind of merges together. And <laughs> yeah, so uh, right now we're using a lot of in vitro fertilization, hormone therapy, and cryopreservation <laughs> um, as tools for conservation for amphibians, not just amphibians, but other species as well. Mm-hmm. A year ago in Puerto Rico, researchers captured six male toads. They pumped them up full of hormones, and then collected the sperm they ejected when they urinated. Mm, Oh. So cute. So basically, the toads usually pee when they're picked up by humans, kind of like a fear stress response. Mm -hmm. But the researchers, this is great, they also barked at the toads because toads urinate when frightened, and dogs barking is a surefire way to scare a toad. (laughs) So they're just sitting there, like, literally barking at the frog in their hand, hoping it pees. That's exactly right. They would pick them up if they didn't pee, and they didn't have enough pee and semen to collect, they would have to bark at Aww. them all dog style. Mm-hmm. Well, that, I, I feel like this brings us one step closer to Jurassic Park. Like, that's what we're really looking at is how, how can yeah. we make things from long dead species, not just recently dead members of a species. That's exactly right. When I was reading this, I was 100% thinking of Jurassic Park. Yeah, no, we're, we're getting closer every day. I can't wait till we have, I mean, maybe stick to frogs for a little while. Like, we'll just have Jurassic era small <laughs> amphibians. We don't need to go yes, with the raptors yes. just yet. Exactly, exactly. So we're already doing this not only with amphibians, but there is a project in Colorado where a scientist named Jennifer Barfield is using IVF to create bison with healthy genes to introduce them into existing wild herds. Huh. Yeah. Right now, there are a lot of Yellowstone bison that have a bacterial disease called brucellosis. And so she describes this as a form of genetic insurance, right? You never know how science is going to advance the material in the future, but there are ways that you can kind of prop up existing populations and and give them better defense against diseases. And this isn't genetic modification where they're trying to create a strain of bison that are resistant to this bacteria. They're just saying, look, this is going to wipe out a certain number. Let's make sure we don't lose too many of them. Exactly. Exactly. It's a way of just kind of like improving what's already there without substantially mutating or evolving something. Yeah. Yeah. Next link. Next link. So we got another one from Canada, another CBC article. This one is called $500,000 Bet on Rock, Paper, Scissors Ruled Invalid by Quebec Court. Oh, no. Yeah. So that's a lot of money on a rock, scissors, paper bet. And they really don't explain how the bet came to be. They just say that in 2011, Edmund Mark Hooper and his friend Michel Primo bet the American equivalent of $517,000 on a best two out of three game of rock, paper, scissors. (gasps) And that was it. Like, who? Oh, how stressful. Yeah. I really want more backstory on these guys. Like, what were they thinking that this was a good idea? And then who actually holds Mm -hmm. their friend to that bet? Because he did. (laughs) Uh, Hooper lost and he had to take out a mortgage on his home to pay off the debt. (gasps) So it's not like these are just, you know, billionaires playing with money that meant nothing to them. This was a crazy set of circumstances. But because he took out a mortgage on his home, the bank got involved. And when the bank found out, (laughs) hang on a second, you're using this to pay off a debt. That's ridiculous. We're not okay with this. We want to take our mortgage loan back. So because, of course, Hooper was like, well, you can't. I already gave it to my friend. They went to court and the bank said, we want our money back. This whole thing was invalid. Make Primo give it back to us. And the judges in the various case, it went through a few appeals, but the judges ruled the contract invalid for two reasons. Number one, 
Canadian law says that wager amounts can't be excessive. And that's one of those, you know, what a reasonable person says. There is no actual definition of what's excessive. Mm -hmm. It's left up to the judges. But all of the judges in this case said, yeah, that's not a reasonable Mm -hmm. amount of money to bet on a rock, paper, scissors game of all things. The second reason, which is kind of more interesting, Canadian law says that any wager must be related to activities, quote, requiring only skill or bodily exertion on the part of the parties. Basically, it can't be a game of chance. And it's sort of their way of outlawing some gambling, but not all gambling. And the judges, a lot of them disagreed on this. The first judge said, oh, no, this is not a game of chance. In certain precise circumstances, the game can call upon the skill of the parties, particularly in the speed of execution, the sense of observation, (laughs) or the putting in place of a strategic sequence. But she ruled that nonetheless, it's invalid because of the money. And they appealed it and they kind of went up the court. And the final court, which still said, no, it's invalid because of the money, They were careful to note, no, no, it's a game of chance. And that part is also (laughs) a reason this should be thrown out. But I think that by the time you're getting judges debating on the chance or planned nature of a game of rock, paper, scissors, you've kind of lost the point. So in given those parameters, would something like arm wrestling for 20 bucks be acceptable? Right, because then it's your actual strength. You're actually doing something in mm-hmm. order to win the bet. And of course, this means that betting on sporting events is apparently allowed in Canada. The only thing you can't bet on is like in casinos oh. or things where it's uh, a, a random chance, which, you know, if you're trying to tamp down on the more insidious social effects of gambling, but not take people out of the standard March Madness pool or whatever. It seems like a nice little dividing line to say, no, there has to be some skill involved where you somehow earn the wager, even though you're not the one. They weren't clear whether you had to be the one involved in the activity. I think as long as someone is exerting some physical effort, it doesn't have to be you. You can wager on it. (laughs) But rock, paper, scissors. I mean, there there are some quote unquote strategies, right? Right. I feel like there are some studies that have been done that if you do two scissors in a row, then the next one's probably going to be a rock or Hmm. something like that. There's some kind of psychology just because it's a limited data set of what your options are. I know that there are rock, paper, scissors tournaments out there as well. And so there have got to be some developed strategies. I wonder if they would take that up to the Supreme Court in Canada. That's right. Well, and I've seen as well an AI that can beat you at rock, paper, scissors every time. And what it's really doing is using high-speed cameras that are trained on your hand, and it starts to anticipate Uh. as you're forming the shape, it sees what you're about to form and quickly does its hand shape because it's just faster and smarter. But, I mean, it's it's cheating. Yeah, but that is a type of skill (laughs) then, right? I mean, like, if you have somebody who's, like, a super sensor, they can process things visually a little bit quicker, Mm -hmm. why not? And, yeah, I think that we have definitely been cheated in not being provided the circumstances that led to such an outrageous bet over those means. Yeah, no, I feel like there there has to be more in the depositions or something that we can dig up that's public record because this, I, it's it's just not enough information. You can't say, oh, yeah, we had a bet for half a million dollars over rock, paper, scissors. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. So, next link. Next link. This is kind of a long form piece from Atlas Obscura by Eric J. Wallace. At Monticello, Thomas Jefferson's garden is still growing. It's a little bit of a misnomer here, mostly because it's not like the original garden that was planted has survived all of this time in its original form. It's basically outlining kind of a restoration and rehabilitation project that's been undergone over decades to kind of bring it back to close to what it was like when Thomas Jefferson had his sprawling garden, because apparently he was kind of a culinary gardening aficionado. He was a obsessed with collecting, cultivating, and then recommending or spreading some of these different culinary vegetables, fruits, 
beans, herbs, everything else. And they've got extensive notes and records that were meticulously created and kept by Thomas Jefferson. This was a huge passion project of his. And part of why this is resonating with me is because I finally got a Nintendo Switch and started playing Animal Crossing. And so <laughs> there are different things that you can do in there to like add non-native fruits that sell for more when you sell it. And you can hybridize different flowers by watering them and placing different colors of the same type together and they can spawn different colors. And so for me, this is like super relevant, but kind of like in a neat real world application. Right. But basically over the years, it had fallen into disrepair. It had kind of been raided by different groups to harvest the materials. They go into detail kind of like how that happened. But it's been a decades long preservation and restoration effort that now is seeing a lot of historical accuracy in how these are being done as well, hmm. because they've got so many notes that they're going back to that they want to make sure. And part of the difficulty too, is that some of the notes that Thomas Jefferson had about like certain varietals they're not referred to in the same way. So it may have been like a colloquial name or a name that has fallen out of favor that was replaced later by a more scientifically accurate name or more standardized and widely accepted name. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of it's taken some what they call botanic forensic work <laughs> or detective work where they've had to say like, you know, based on the name that he has here, is this what he was talking about? Just a labor of love yeah. on the part of a number of people. And what's cool is they also sell seed packets as well. And so it's kind of a historical seed bank at the same time. And especially with the COVID pandemic, the center usually sells about 92,000 seed packets a year, but orders for 2020 surpassed that number by April 1st. Wow. And they're continuing to flood in. I mean, everybody's getting back into the victory gardens mm -hmm. and things like that. Well, and it probably is worth noting that Thomas Jefferson himself was not out there with a shovel and a plow. He, he had other people doing the hard work for him. He was just documenting what he had grown in his that garden. That is, not only is that a good point from you, the article is very careful right. to note <laughs> that the people who are involved with this, they're not just looking for records of plants and Jefferson the gardener. They're also looking for slave labor and Jefferson as a plantation owner as well. I mean, this was a fundamental aspect of the project, mm -hmm. according to the person who really runs this. Usually and historically, Monticello has kind of avoided the subject. It was not tasteful to really bring it up. I mean, even as a kid, my family did a lot of RV trips around the country to historical landmarks, which was kind of lost on me as right. like a sub 10 year old. But I have been to Monticello. And I remember hearing that people even visiting as recently as 10 years ago would, you know, try to talk about slavery or visit the slave quarters, they were either blocked off, or they wouldn't really furnish a lot of discussion about huh. it, because it's a difficult part of history. Right. But it is a part of history as well. And so what one of the people running this project said is that the only way to paint a complete portrait of Jefferson, the horticulturist, is to present the realities of slave ownership. Yeah. And we wanted to build that information into our educational model from the get go. Well, that's cool. I'm, yeah. I'm glad that they're covering all the angles. And hey, maybe maybe there's a vegetable out there that I haven't tried that I would really like. We got to get, <laughs> get some of those seeds and see what grows up. <laughs> Next link. Next link. So this one comes from 1843 magazine. It's called Before Tinder, There Was Dateline. And this is basically Ooh. sort of a, a history of the very first major computerized dating service in the UK in 1966. Uh, and apparently huh. it was more widespread than I thought. This was actually a thing. You know, we tend to think of online dating as a modern thing. And certainly the online social connection of the two people using the service is new. But even back as far as 1966, these companies were using computers to create matches for their customers. So the guy who did this is called John Patterson. And he was inspired mm -hmm. by he was from the UK, but he had visited America. And while he was there, he was sort of hanging out around Harvard. 
and he was inspired by Operation Match, which was this real small little program that was run by and for students. Three bucks a pop. You fill out a little questionnaire. And in a few days, they mail you the names and phone numbers of your top matches. So it was just sort of a small, fun thing within Harvard, kind of like Facebook was in the beginning. Um, Yeah. And at the time, they were using one of the school's computers. That was one of the big hurdles for anybody trying to do a business like this is where do you get the computer? Mm -hmm. At Harvard, the computer was an IBM 1401, which they note is a five-ton machine, basically as big as a room. And (gasps) at the time, in 1966, they called it the Great God Computer. And so I'm not sure if people (laughs) running the school were aware that this is what their computer was being used for. Or if this was just kind of a fun side project that they were doing in the off hours, I'm not sure. (laughs) But Patterson saw this and realized, oh, man, this is way more than just college kids having a little fun. This is a real business idea. So he went back to the UK. Somehow he rented time on a computer that was owned by IBM. Because basically any computer programmer back in the day, that was what you did. You would rent an hour on this Mm -hmm. machine. You'd go into where they kept it, use it, and leave again. He put out a bunch of ads. That was sort of one of his specialties was marketing. He had uh, one of his, mm-hmm. they had a bunch of his earlier businesses in the article. One of his earlier businesses was selling eggs that had been sort of sprinkled with gluey chicken feathers to make them look Ooh. more fresh. Basically, they were just eggs, Ugh. but he had gone and re-glued a bunch of feathers onto the eggs. So people were like, oh, this came direct from the farm. Gross. So he was clearly, he was big into image. He was big into marketing. And he ended up getting mm. a lot of people signed in. Applicants would fill out a two-page questionnaire, which was supposedly written by psychologists. That part seems pretty dubious. <laughs> and then, a, and to sort of bolster this, aside from the standard tell us about yourself kind of questions, applicants had to draw an image. There were six squares on a piece of paper, and they had to turn those six squares into a picture that would, quote, show up the huh. personal differences which make each one of us into a separate, unique individual. Now, There is absolutely no way Mm. the computer at the time could have scanned that or somehow interpreted what you This was very clearly just him going, ah, let's make this a little more Freudian. And then we're going to toss that data out and just (laughs) feed in the little punch cards of, yeah, I'm this many years old. This is the kind of person I'm looking for. But at any rate, it was uh, wildly successful. They sort of ran into some hitches early on. In 1976, There was an Office of Fair Trading Inquiry, which is sort of like a government fraud examining organization, because someone made a complaint to the government after the service matched a Jewish woman with a Palestinian man. They said, you're not taking enough data. This is not cool. You you need to, Uh. you know, this is fraudulent. (laughs) Basically, you're claiming to match people when we're clearly not a match. Anybody could see that if they took two seconds to talk to us. So they had to sort of add some more parameters and get a little bit better about their data. But as of 1982, Mm -hmm. it cost 45 pounds. And it had 44,000 customers. So, I mean, it was a... (gasps) That's a lot of money back then. Yeah, and it was back in the UK. I mean, the population is much smaller back then and also compared to America. It was a significant process whereby people would go and meet a date, if not the love of their life. And they continued all the way up until 1997. They only started declining after Patterson's death, and they kind of failed to make the transition into digital online stuff. They were still having people, you know, mm-hmm. mark things on a questionnaire and it just wasn't. But they were pioneers yeah, in the absolutely. industry of the industry. That's right. Well, and they note that like today there's over 1,400 dating apps in Britain and the modern programs have certainly gotten more precise about the kind of data they collect. But most of them are still largely based on a particular algorithm called the Gale Shapley algorithm from 1962. 
And it's just a basic patterning algorithm, which refines matches with repeated iterations of proposals and rejections. And they're all still basically using this same algorithm. There's no reason to change it because it pretty much does what it says it does. It works. Yeah. yeah. So and, you know, they've said that it statistically, as far as like following up with people who ended up in successful relationships based on their matches from Dateline, Tinder is more effective. But... (laughs) Nonetheless, wow. <laughs> they, but that may also just be because of the sheer number of users. One of the big complaints about Dateline right. was, look, 44,000 is a lot, but if the love of your life isn't a customer, you'll never find them on right, there. Right, then. So, exactly. You'll just get a close match based on the sample yeah. set. But, you know, hmm. he was a pioneer and uh, he created the first offline dating app. <laughs> and look what that has spawned That's right. Nothing today. but good things <laughs> came out of it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that is all we have time for today. We're glad you joined us on this, again, a Friday, unless it's not. There are many more articles on the website that we didn't get to. Some of those articles are The Space Shuttle Was a Beautiful But Terrible Idea, The Archaeological Record is Full of Dog Poop, and Wait a Second, That Table Has No Legs. Uh, That one is from Wired. It's quite interesting. (laughs) But all those and more and the ones that we talked about today can be found on daminteresting.com if you'd like to learn a little more about them or get a little more details. If you'd like to support us and help our podcast keep going, you can go to patreon.com slash daminterestingweek. We would love to have your support. We work really hard and we hope that you're enjoying the content that we provide. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. And I'm Angela Epley. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.